Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And I'm David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren. And uh, Stefan's going to be interviewing Dr. Andy Hira. The director of the Clean Energy Research Group uh, and is a part of the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University. And you will be discussing? Community energy plans, uh, the ways they can work, things you have to make sure you do, and then also the potential of geothermal energy. And we're going to do a little bit of climate news, not much. Um, and before that, Stefan and Lauren are going to introduce us with some with some discussion. Same as we always do, just us babbling for the first 10 minutes like we like to do. Um, so I'm in a new city. Well, not a new city. I'm in Montreal, a place I've been several times before. Um, but I'm here for work this week, and I'm in this new neighborhood <laughs> called Griffintown. But I'm sure I say new. I'm sure it's been here for a couple decades. But everybody talks about it like a new place, and all the buildings are very new, and and all the roads are appear to be relatively like they're not. These roads haven't been here for like a hundred years or anything. Uh, I think before, I don't actually know what this neighborhood was before. I imagine something like factories. Um, but anyway, being here is so weird and frustrating because it's like another example of a Canadian city that chooses not to pay attention to um, like best practices in urban planning. And it's really bizarre. We think of Montreal as like Canada's best city from an urban planning standpoint. In a lot of ways it is, it's dense. It's not a ton of high rises. It's a lot of these great sort of middle sized multi-unit buildings. And that's really great. And the streets are narrow because they were all, they were all planned out in like the 1600s or whatever. But th with this new neighborhood, it's a ton of high rises, which aren't inherently bad. It looks like there are a ton of expensive condos. There's a little bit of commercial, but not nearly as much as you would expect for a new and upcoming neighborhood. Um, and a lot of the streets um, have like really bizarre intersections and like they don't the paths don't coordinate well with bridges and stuff like that. So it's just, it's bizarre to be in a city that's otherwise so well planned out and so livable um, from an urban planning standpoint and to find yourself in this weird new neighborhood where it's like, you can't find a restaurant to go to for dinner or whatever. And if you live in Griffintown and you love Griffintown, I'm so sorry. I'm not, I'm not fully knocking it. Um, it seems like a great place to be. It does just seem odd that once again, we know the best practices when it comes to urban planning and, and we choose to ignore them time and time again. I find it so interesting that so often the places that actually live up to best practices are more often the oldest places. Well before we had 16 different ways you could measure in urban planning, we were designing cities that were walkable and livable and easy to be in. And now we find ourselves in these places where even now when we're trying to build more walkable places, it seems a bit like a stretch or a fight, or we aren't able to get the type of liberal houses in there because we've spent the last 30, 40 years creating a whole set of regulations that undermine that. We see it here in Toronto, how there are whole neighborhoods where during a housing crisis are losing population because it's much easier to turn a multi-unit uh, house into a single dwelling than to the reverse. It's very simple to make a multi-unit house in a single leveling, but the moment you wanna turn a single unit into say four, it's a zoning conversation. It becomes dramatically more difficult. And so we've created all of these systems to almost entrench bad planning into our bones. We know in a lot of ways that the reasons older cities make for more pleasant living is because like the streets were laid out before cars existed. So things are closer together and blocks are shorter and blocks are also on a grid and they're narrower. So you have this feeling of like, I don't know, a more intimate, friendly, comforting place to be. Also, modern zoning bylaws are like and in the clutches of developers but I don't have any sort of like misconceptions about like, I'm sure the 16th century equivalent of a developer was just as much of a jerk as they are today, right? Like I'm sure like the, 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 the shopkeepers and merchants who had all the money in the city at the time would still also have had a ton of control over city councilors. It's just funny that the, I don't know, maybe they did a lot of damage at the time, but, but the resulting product is still a quite livable, pleasant place to be. 
I think part of it has to do too with the war on cars or the needed war on cars because how much they inherently create poor urban planning. The thing I'm thinking about is vaguely related, but just largely due to the, the ways in which capital can mess with good planning or good thinking. And it starts actually, I think, with a conversation I had with a conservative farmer about a month and a half ago. And we were chatting, and you know, this is someone who certainly has voted blue their entire life, right? No question about that. And they're, you know, they're a farmer here in Ontario. And yet one of the things that they were sort of talking about in, in identifying was the ways that our current systems are so biased and so set up to consolidate farms. And so he's seeing time and time again that the smaller farms get, get bought up by bigger farms and those bigger farms are bought up by even bigger farms. And slowly but surely, you know, we see a reduction in the loss of small farmers towards these big corporations that own, you know, all these things. Of course, those of us, you know, who exist uh, in, in a space of thinking about capitalism a lot see that that is a trend that exists all over the place, right? It is, you know, it's the reason, A, this is that that exact consolidation of farms is happening throughout North America. The loss of a small family farm has been something that people have been talking about for decades and trying to reverse to limited success. But also, it's the reason for the housing crisis. You know, the fact that in Toronto, it is now true that the average home buyer already owns one other house is because it's so much easier to get more debt to buy another house than it is to enter the market. And so you have people who need a single their own house, but they can't get a mortgage, but someone who already has a million dollar mortgage can buy that second house and then charge more than their mortgage would be for rent for that same people who can't afford the first house to live there. And so slowly but surely, we are seeing house after house after house be bought up by cons- by consolidating family and consolidating credit. And then, you know, bigger businesses come in and they own larger units or, or more houses. And once again, this act of consolidation is continuing in the housing market and creating the exact same problem we're seeing, which is sort of like that wealth and power consolidates upwards with, through capitalism. And so that fact that left unchecked capitalism can consolidate power, you know, helps explain in some ways the ways that Amazon has so successfully taken over basically the entire idea of an internet market. You buy something online, chances are it's going to be at least in some way touched by Amazon if you're not buying it directly from Amazon. There are now whole industries that are based off directing you from their website to Amazon because Amazon gives you little kickbacks if you link to an Amazon product from your website. And the same is true the way that Google has managed to basically destroy how much ad advertising revenue that exists across any of the media sites you used to go to because they are now one consolidated place to do that and they have enough money to be able to sort of push their way through it. And we're seeing it again. And I, I read earlier today that this might not go through because Musk might pull out, but even seeing how Elon Musk is planning on spending $44 billion to purchase Twitter and basically turn it into his own little fiefdom is again, a way that's, that, that capitalism is leading the consolidation of power. And the fact that this is happening with Musk, I think is particularly important because you know, he was the face, I think, of the technocratic solution to climate change. You know, he was the idea that we could innovate our way out of this, that the world just needed a hundred more Elon Musks and we would get our, and we would solve the climate crisis. And yet what does Musk do when he becomes the most powerful man in the world? He makes fun of the UN for saying it needs $6 billion to solve, to solve world hunger and instead spends $44 billion on a vanity project to own Twitter when he could do anything else would be more valuable with that money and what he's decided to do. And I remember like years ago on this show, we had a conversation about whether or not the right wing vilification of uh, any type of attempts to tackle climate change was going to create a scenario where the only way to get real action was going to be left wing responses to climate change. And I think it's safe to say we're here now. You know, 20 years ago, a slowly escalating carbon tax might have solved climate change. It would not have solved income inequality. It would not have solved a lot of other problems, but we would not be facing sort of, I think, the 
scale of the climate crisis that we're experiencing now. And we, you know, we might have, we would have moved off in a lot of other ways. At this point, though, when you look at the level of consolidation of power in these big corporations and the ways that these billionaires are using their money to control the conversation, how we speak about things, and almost all of the media, I mean, the Washington Post literally is owned by Jeff Bezos, and yet their slogan is democracy dies in darkness. You know, you're owned by the darkness. I don't know what you're talking about. But I think that like at this point, with the, the deity of technocratic climate change solution, Elon Musk, basically proving himself to be yet another right-wing billionaire who just wants to post alt-right memes on Twitter all day, it to me speaks that the only response that will actually succeed is a combination of government regulation to break up these monopolies and actually, you know, give the, you know, go to go all the way back to the farmer at the beginning to let small farmers exist again, to compete on a level playing field with the Goliaths that exist in the industry and wealth redistribution to ensure that you cannot, no one on earth should be rich enough to be able to buy the entire way someone, our world communicates. And yes, Twitter isn't the end all be all, but it is one of the biggest ways and it is now owned or could be owned again, if it actually goes through and some people think Elon Musk will back out. But if it does happen, it'll be a privately owned company at that point, because he will own more than half of it. And that to me strikes me as that we're stuck. The only answers, I'm sorry, white wingers, if you wanted to do what your right wing solution to climate change, you missed the boat 20 years ago. We're stuck now. The only way is through regulation and in government intervention and wealth redistribution, because nothing else is going to get us there. Like, I'm not even sorry, right-wingers. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, people who identify as socially liberal and fiscally conservative, who like we might consider right-wingers, but you know what I mean? There's a conversation that we need to have at some point on the show, sort of, I'm not attempting to pivot off of what you said, but I, I'm having this thought because I'm, I'm at a, a meeting for work this week where I'm meeting with a bunch of really, really amazing colleagues who all work for really, really great nonprofit organizations. Um, and nonprofit organizations, for those who aren't aware, though I'm sure you all are, our work is funded through primarily philanthropic foundations, which in turn are funded by millionaires and billionaires, um, depending on what fund it is you're talking about. Like a lot of organizations not necessarily mine or the ones that I'm talking to, but like are funded by the Rockefeller Association, which is like, of course you recognize the name Rockefeller. They're like the most famous old money billionaires, right? What we would now consider old money. And anyway, there's a, there's a really great book that I read several months ago now that came out kind of during the pandemic about mutual aid called Mutual Aid. The author's name is Dean Spade. And Dean's arguing or making the case that like organizations like the one I work for, like the one my amazing colleagues works for, or the ones my amazing colleagues work for, um, can never truly be revolutionary, can never truly get us to that place of establishment dismantlement and, and, and really um, meaningful systemic change when it comes to that redistribution of funds, because we are inherently reliant on the dollars of those billionaires, the, the philanthropic ones, the ones that we might consider to be good people, the, the Mackenzie Bezoses of the world, who's, who's to her credit, trying so hard to redistribute her wealth in, in, in ethical ways. But um, it's something that I sort of, I think about briefly for a little bit and then push it to the back of my mind. Cause I find it's like, mm, that'll interfere too much with just like the work I am trying to do. And to the credit of, of my colleagues, like we are all trying to do good work, but it is, it's something I, I consider a lot of the times. It's like how truly revolutionary can we be when we are still actually like locked in these, in, in, in a capitalist cycle, albeit a different type of capitalist cycle. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that the answer has to be, we have to find other ways to be funding this kind of work, or we have to ensure that enough money is redistributed that these types of nonprofits don't have to rely on massive donations, but can rely on, you know, mass populist donations because people have enough money to put this forward, right? Like we've we've lost so much wealth in the in the bottom eighty percent of people's wealth, uh, people's of, of of incomes, compared comparative to what it was say 20, 30 years ago, that of course the only people left who have money are in the top twenty percent 
because that, that's what's happened the last 30, 40 years. Wealth has shifted upwards, you know, and it's why you start seeing these, what I find unbelievably out of touch newspaper articles that are coming out that are saying things like, you know, Canadians are, are failing to recognize the great times we're in because ec economists say, and it's like, who's living the great times? It's, and it's only the people who can truly extract themselves from the daily grind that is life right now, which is that upper limit, which is the set of people who are able to listen to economists, you know, uh, and, and but yet that we keep people popping these things out because also they're the ones who own the newspapers, you know, they're the ones who own these media, like it, it is, we are not experiencing anything else because everything is controlled or funded in some way by a set of people who have just tons and tons of money. And, and the, since Reagan, the capitalist class has successfully extracted tons of money from the bottom 80%. And that's what we're seeing now. And it's a whole, you know, it's the musks of the world that, that are leading to the, like that, who then will go on Twitter and say, I'm defending free speech while sharing alt-right memes as if that's the right answer to our, our societal problems. And it's like, no, it's you. Elon? Like, and it's, it's so funny. You mentioned articles like that. And it does always strike me as hilarious that like, that the natural response to that isn't, well, obviously your mechanisms for measuring what, what merits a good life in 2022 are vastly inadequate. Because if you're telling me, no, 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 you have a good life and I can't afford rent and none of my friends have good jobs and none of us can go out and socialize. So we're all sitting at home on our phones, bored to tears and lonely and have depression. Like clearly your mechanisms aren't, aren't living up to, to the job. We need to find new mechanisms. And I mean, we know that we've known that for a long time, but it is just funny that sort of like when it comes time to publish those editorials, that it always is that positive. Hey guys, life's actually not that bad. And this economist says so, and these are his metrics. And it's like, okay, well, your metrics suck. And then when you actually do like much more direct asks to individuals of where the happiness indexes really work, it is in much, much more equal societies, right? We've seen this time and time again, the studies, even for the rich people, rich people and poor people are happier in more equal societies. And here on The Green Majority, before, just before we get to Stefan's interview with the good doctor, we're gonna just. I'm gonna mention three Canadian stories, and Stefan's gonna say what he wants about them. Number one, do, some doctors put out a report from the Canadian Association of Physicians saying that transitioning. Now, this is apropos of what was discussed just earlier in the show. Canadians will receive immense health benefits uh, from from cutting down on traffic-related air pollution. Immense health benefits. So all around, people's lives will improve if we shift to electric vehicles and more walkable cities or bikeable cities or whatever. Just reducing that plastic, that, that traffic pollution will be very good for, for people's health. Canadian, if you care about Canadians' health, the good of the nation, you should cut down uh, on cars. Also, Canada, this is a new report or a latest update from the Public Finance for Energy database released by Oil, Oil Change International, um, is that Canada leads the world in public financing for fossil fuel development internationally. So we give $11 billion a year, and that's the most any country gives. That's Export, de export Development Canada. And finally, Doug Ford's government... Doug Ford, he's up for election in about two months, or one month, actually, close to one month. June 2nd, I think it is. And uh, it's recently come to light that his Highway 413, uh, they chose a route for this large highway, uh, which is the most environmentally damaging one possible. Um, the experts who were studying it said it would actually undermine the credibility of the project if they chose this, this route, because they're trying to avoid a, de a pre-existing development. But they're going through, they're having to go through the largest part of the green belt, right, that was possible. And, and they're, they're destroying the most, they're doing the most damaged ecosystems possible out of all the routes they could have chosen for this particular highway. And I believe one of the reasons they it, it didn't want to do some other ones was that it was going to disrupt or cause problems for some of the 
developers who donated to their campaign, if I remember correctly. Um, but the other thing I want to highlight is to go back to a couple of your stories actually there, is one of the signatories for a new coalition called the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, which was just launched this Wednesday, is the Canadian Association for Physicians and the Environment. But they have joined not just themselves, but I, it is over 125 groups that represent over 500,000 people on, to create a coalition that is coming to try to hold any Ontario government held accountable to a, a list of demands that um, th that is that are meant to match the or, sorry to meet the moment of the climate emergency that we're facing, and you know that comes down to things like ensuring that we don't doubly or triple down invest in cars as we have seen the the current government do so, including in Highway Four Thirteen or the Brantford Bypass, you know, and actually begin to attack to take for take steps forward to reduce our emissions. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about that, that is the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign, which launched just on Wednesday, uh, and you can find out more about them uh, just by Googling that. I am here with Dr. Andy Hira, who is with the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University and is the director of the Clean Energy Research Group. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. Sure. Thank you for having me. So the Clean Energy Research Group has been sort of releasing papers over the last little bit about a whole bunch of energy things. And today we're going to dive into community energy plans, why they're important, how we can make them better, and then a little bit at the end about geothermal energy, because that's, a, I think, a really important forgotten third out of when people focus so often on wind and solar, and yet really can provide some, some importance. And so I want to get to that in a second. But before, by way of introduction, can you just sort of tell us about the Clean Energy Research Group and, and what you set out to do? Sure, I'd be happy to. The Clean Energy Research Group comes out of a conference that Simon Fraser University organized about four years ago now. And the idea was to try to get foundations or funding agencies, academic researchers, and those who work in the real world, whether in the private sector or in the nonprofit world, in one room so that we could all talk together and try to be on the same page. Out of that conference came the Clean Energy Research Group. And the idea was to have the academics who are doing kind of long-term big picture research start to ground themselves into the reality that practitioners, those who run projects or those who work for municipalities or those who have to make policy decisions on a day-by-day decision-making system have to face. And so what the academics can bring to the table is to, is to give the practitioners an ability to learn from their everyday experience and to put these into a bigger picture so that one community doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we know, for example, in Europe, many municipalities and many governments are far ahead of where Canada is. If we can draw lessons from other places, uh, then maybe we can start to accelerate our efforts around climate change here. And then for the academics, it's very important for us, at least some of us, to feel like our research is making a difference in the real world. And so... What we do in the Clean Energy Research Group is we pursue grants to work with communities that want to develop renewable energy projects, whether that be in Canada or around the world. And we develop a series of working papers that both graduate students, researchers, and practitioners can participate in that seek, seek to move the policy discussion forward. And then thirdly, what we do is a monthly forum where we provide by either an academic or a practitioner, the forum to speak to the group or to anyone who wants to tune in uh, to talk about an issue that they're wrestling with 
or research that they've just completed uh, in order to get feedback and hopefully will not only spark a good discussion, but eventually lead to a kind of a working paper. And so on our website, we have these working papers and the hope is uh, that these will become uh, kind of a repository of knowledge and will stay up to date with uh, the kinds of issues that policymakers are facing. Cool. Yeah. That it's, it's interesting that you sort of were so clear that your work is sort of trying to get academics to where the rubber hits the road. Because when I, you know, we're going to be talking about a couple of those working papers. And one thing I immediately noticed actually was how practical they were. You know, they're not long. They are really based on here are the guide steps. You know, I, I sort of, when I opened it, I sort of expected an abstract and, and I, I really was expecting much more of an academic paper, but it's really just here's what you need to know, go do it. Well, our group includes not only social scientists like myself, but engineers. And so our engineers are pushing us to get to the practical X's and O's. But we also recognize in this day and age that people have limited bandwidth. There, there's a barrage of information and we want to continue to publish in academic outlets, but our main audience would be policymakers, practitioners, and the interested public. And so we have to bring it down to the key points at the key takeaway points for each topic. Right. That makes sense. And so, as I mentioned, we will be drawing on a couple of papers uh, that you, that's been written for this, uh, this interview. And the first is about community energy and emissions plans. Actually, I think two of the three are, but for our audience who may not be aware of what these terms mean, can you explain what they are and why they're important? Yeah, well. One of the biggest issues, I would say maybe one of the most fundamental issues that we face in regard to the green transition and climate change more generally is the perception by the public and policymakers to a lesser extent that there is a trade-off between economic growth and quality of life and environmental preservation. And so we have had for many years the idea behind community energy plans. And these have become more and more important as the cost for renewable energy, uh, particularly solar panels, has gone down. So in a place like Canada, where we have so many remote communities that are fairly geographically isolated or which are traversed by very long transmission lines, it makes more sense to start to think about perhaps a more decentralized electricity grid where communities, especially First Nations communities, that have ready access to renewable resources, including in Western Canada, geothermal resources, to start to develop their own sources of electricity. And so these community energy plans are a way of taking inventory or stock of the existing local resources, the needs of the community, the history of energy provision in the past, and decisions that have been made that might have some past dependent effects on the choices that are available, governance issues, economic issues, technology issues, all of these things are important. But we as a research group that started out looking at economic development issues also recognizes that these kinds of solutions are not going to be attractive to communities or to society at large unless they're able to provide a source of economic well-being. That is, the solution has to be economically attractive to these communities. If we look at it on the largest level, you know, we can't just pass. The reason why we don't pass carbon taxes, even though every economist will tell you this is the most logical solution is, it feels like a negative burden on society. And so if you think about the huge amounts of revenue created by oil for the federal government, or the Newfoundland government, or the Alberta government, and the jobs and employment and companies that are tied to these sectors, to simply pass a carbon tax just seems like a punishment. And we know because of politics that politicians who uh, run on a pure environmental platform will not get elected. Just look at the fate of the Green Party across much of Canada. What we need is to show that this green transition can be good for economics. On the federal and global level, it can create new green industries. And so we think that economics has to be tied in a positive way to environmental preservation. And on the community level, therefore, one has to think about the history, especially the history of our interaction with First Nations communities 
where our governments tend to just throw money at them and expect the problem to be solved. And what we really want is to try to address those social problems, not by throwing money, but by creating employment, new industries, new jobs. And so the type of renewable energy and clean energy projects you create and the spinoffs that those might have by creating cheaper energy within those communities can really have a dual beneficial effect uh, for the environment and for the local economy there. And so what are the components of making good plan? You know, if someone was going to set out and do that, what would they, what should they set out to do? So the first thing we should start with is the geography of the community and trying to develop a deeper knowledge of the community. And in that sense, the community itself has to create this plan. It has to have ownership for the plan. And so outside people can provide some advice or guidance, but in the end, it's up to the community to decide what are its economic and environmental goals? What kinds of governance or decision-making systems does it want to set up around its energy systems? How will those energy systems impact its long-term goals for creating jobs, reducing migration, reducing social ills, other aspects that cannot be separated from the energy systems? What resources are available to it in terms of uh, potentially creating renewable energies? Um, what kind of track record does it have in uh, marshalling outside resources and or developing a highly qualified personnel that would be ne needed to run these renewable energy systems? How easy, for example, is it to make this transition away from fossil fuels? One of the biggest problems that communities are going to face, especially in remote communities in BC, in Northern Canada, and in Western Canada, is that they largely depend on fossil fuels. And even though uh, many are importing these fossil fuels and running diesel generators to provide heat or energy at a very high cost, there is an intermittency problem with most renewables. The intermittency problem is that the sun doesn't always shine and uh, the wind doesn't always blow and battery systems are still in a very nascent technological phase. So this is where outside actors can play a huge role to help them overcome those technological barriers around energy storage, to think about diversifying different kinds of renewable energy sources so that at least one of those sources might be active at any given time, to think about connecting different communities to each other so you can achieve economies of scale. And if one community has less peak hours, the other community would have cheaper power. These are the kinds of things that would go into the basic considerations behind a, a community energy and economic plan. Cool. So sort of starting with what the community wants and, and then building from that to opening that up maybe to some experts who could then help them get to that goal in a way that is achievable and then ultimately actually designing it. Exactly. The idea is to give the community ownership over the projects that happen there and to make sure that they are integrated in decision-making every step along the way so that they are masters of their own fate and that they tie those projects to community resources, including training youth uh, to be able to install and develop and maintain these renewable sites, to make sure that there is a governance system so that, for example, if they're selling energy, they have a plan and they have transparency bound around what they're going to do with those revenues, to get them to think about how do they integrate with a larger system if they're on the fringes of a provincial electricity system, for example, maybe they would have the opportunity to sell some electricity back to the provincial system that would provide them revenues. And then that would kick into their economic development. And then last but not least, of course, to try to solve these problems around energy storage. Right, of course. And so you, you referenced a couple of times that this is particularly useful for remote communities which I feel like anyone can sort of understand a few reasons why, and you've mentioned a couple. But I'm wondering if you can paint us a picture. You know, what does this look like for a community that's remote in some fashion? What would be one way or a couple ways to solve this to, or to build a system that would actually do this? I think we have to be careful. I have to remind my engineering uh, partners that not only do we have to be careful about this kind of outside, inside imposition, 
but we have to be careful about just drawing something up on a blueprint and expecting it's going to solve the problem. What we have are systems that need to evolve over time in response to the dynamic needs and constraints of the community in question, not only remote small communities, but our global community, our national and provincial communities. And so we see, for example, there is all this discussion and argument about Site C. And, uh, you know, this is an argument that probably should have been happened before Site C was approved. We know there are going to be huge cost overruns. But if we look to the long term, we also know that Site C, the hydro, large hydro installation in northern BC, that it won't be sufficient to meet our electricity needs. And yet in Great BC, we have no real plan for how to uh, create new renewable energy. On the contrary, we seem to be investing lots of energy and time into developing fossil fuels in the province. In the same way, for a smaller community, they have to think about their long-term needs and have systems that are adaptable and reliable to changes in those needs. So they need a long-term plan, but they also need flexibility in those systems. And that is uh, a big part of the challenge. That is that many of these communities are based on, you know, one or two resource-based industries. And so we've seen time and time again in Canada, you know, when the forest industry starts to go downhill, it adversely affects the community. When a fishing industry goes downhill, it adversely affects the community. And we, so we need to create systems that are not just cheap in price, which is what the large provincial utilities focus on, but consider the real cost of pollution in the environment and are resilient and adaptable for these communities to manage themselves. Well, so then let's flip it to the other side then, which is the, the sort of difficulties. And you mentioned a few of them there that these can face, but I wonder if you can expand on that and talk more about the, the problems or the pitfalls that communities or people working with these communities to create these plans can create and, and what makes these projects fail ultimately. Yeah, we don't have a great track record of success in these kinds of things. I could give you a number of examples. The first problem is lack of capacity within the community itself. And this is a problem throughout development kind of, uh, projects. That is the outside agency, whether it's a consultant or a donor aid agency, will land someone on the tarmac and say, okay, we're here to help and solve, quote unquote, solve your problem. And the problem there is, Time and time again, even if you develop a solar installation or, or a small wind project, that the community itself doesn't have the capacity to install, maintain, or develop jobs around these installations. And so you create this continual sense of dependency on external agents to keep coming in to resolve problems as they come up. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is there's a chicken and egg problem with community development. That is, if BC Hydro, for example, as is the case, spends tons of money to fund all the diesel that has to be uh, sent by mostly by barge up to Northern BC to these remote communities, and it runs these generators, then it is very, it's very reluctant to change its plans because that creates risk for this utility. It doesn't look at the problem from the community's perspective, which is First Nations have green values. They want to get off the diesel. It may be more expensive to make that transition in the short run, but in the long run, they don't just focus on the price. They want to see other benefits that come out of community ownership of energy. So the second problem I would say is there's a lack of harmonization at the global level, at the national level at the provincial level between these very broad-based policies of assistance to remote communities and what these communities actually need. And that goes back to the third question, which is the governance capacity question. Do the communities have experts that understand these energy systems to the point where they can develop good proposals? There's lots of money available at the federal level and provincial level for remote renewable energy. But do the communities have the capacity to develop these proposals? All too often, what we see is these consultants who may be very well-meaning jump into the fray when they see these funding proposals by the provincial government. They say, we're going to help you develop this system. And then they develop shoddy or inappropriate systems for the community. 
because they don't have adequate counterparts in the community that can really navigate these funding systems. And the government is so bureaucratic that it's difficult for the communities to figure out how do I actually get the money that I need to set up these systems and show that it's not only in my interest, but it's in the whole province and the nation's interest to develop these renewable sources. And those are the main issues. And in the end, it becomes down to develop that long-term capacity within the community itself and manage its resources. Right. So it sounds like it ultimately comes down to a real sort of deep commitment to beginning a training program, really, for hundreds of thousands of people to be able to be a part of a green transition. That's right. And you just think about it. If you have a problem with a solar panel, and we've seen this in our group, you have a problem with a solar panel or you have a problem with your electric wiring between the solar panel and the houses or the lowest hanging fruit of a community energy plan and one that we ignore uh, both on the local level and the national and global level is basic insulation or basic maintenance or developing, you know, standard clean energy and energy efficient housing to preserve the heat that's so easily lost in these remote communities, upgrading the housing, right? So that you have better maintenance of energy systems. These kinds of things are only uh, going to be viable in the long run if they're undertaken by local community members. We can't just keep flying experts into these remote communities to fix problems. Yeah, for sure. And so a bit of a pivot now, but I, I want to get a bit on geothermal because I, I think it's exciting and interesting. First, the most basic question, how does geothermal work? Right. So we all know about uh, volcanoes in volcanoes are the magma that's coming from the core of the earth through fissures in uh, the mountains. And that's why we have this ring of fire around the Pacific, because this is where the two tectonic tonic plates of the continents meet. And where those continents brush against each other, it creates these mountains as we have throughout the Pacific, right? And those where those two tectonic plates meet, those the fissures will lead to this magma coming up through these vents, as you see. As everyone knows, you know, as is writ large in Iceland, uh, where you have all kinds of volcanoes coming up. And so we're very fortunate in Western Canada to be the site of all this tectonic plate activity where the two plates are rushing up against each other and creating these potential magma flows. Now, if you can tap into these magma flows, it's a ready source of heat. And that heat uh, can be used without any problems of intermittency that we have with solar or wind. And it can be tapped into any time to either heat up water directly for hot water, to heat up uh, directly homes or businesses, or to potentially to create steam turbines that can create electricity. And so this is a largely untapped source of energy that's right at our fingertips here on the Pacific Coast. Yeah. And, and one that solves, you know, one of the biggest questions, which is how do you deal with intermittency? And so one of your papers dives into the potential of this and makes the case that BC and Canada should really be investing heavily in in bringing about and unlocking geothermal. And I wonder if you can tell us why you think that specifically is so valuable and so important. Well, it goes back to, and we discussed this in the policy paper, the myopic approach provincial and government authorities who are generally bound and driven by the election cycle, which is very short term and uh, very driven by voters' concerns at any given point. And yet what we see is that we're uh, sitting on top of a gold mine of geothermal resources that are lar basically untapped in Western Canada. And on top of that, not only are we sitting on these resources, but we have very good drilling technology and geothermal engineers, both in Alberta and BC, that could use the fracking wells and the oil and gas wells throughout Alberta and parts of BC to reduce the cost of tapping into potential geothermal reserves. Now, the essential problem is that there's a huge upfront uh, risk for anyone, any private sector developer that wants to go in and say, develop a new geothermal reserve. Frankly, the science behind figuring out where the geothermal reserve is, how large is it? What's the heat temperature? How many years it will last? 
these things are still at a very early stage in terms of our scientific and technological knowledge. So the thing that's impeding geothermal development is, A, we don't have a regulatory system that opens the way up adequately for private sector operators to go in. And B, most private operators are not willing to take the risk of drilling a geothermal well and coming up dry. It would cost them uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars or into the millions to drill that well. And if they come up dry, uh, then they've lost all that money. And so what we talk about in the policy paper is in places like California and even the Philippines, the government offers them a guarantee. So if you come up dry in this well, we will defray some of your costs. And if you hit this well, and it is a rich reserve where you can make money uh, by selling heat or energy, uh, then you will pay us back. Or So it'll be e either offered as an insurance policy or it'll be offered as a subsidy. And that has led to huge amounts of development in California, uh, you know, just a few hours south of our border where almost nothing is happening in Canada. Oh, yeah. And it strikes me that what you're proposing isn't really different from what the Canadian government did for, say, the oil industry or other industries, you know, right? Like de-risking the early stages as people figure it out. It seems like that's one of the classic things that government has done to help fledgling industries off the ground. Very few people seem to know that TELUS and the, you know, what, what we have of the cell phone industry in Canada, including Nortel, it, it came from government yeah, subsidies and in innovation. And more importantly, the whole oil sands industry came from government subsidies in innovation. And for decades, the government has been effectively subsidizing the oil and gas industry, especially the upstream part of oil exploration and development, which is very, uh, very risky proposition. And so we've been doing this, as you point out, in industries left and right for many, many years. And yet it becomes a chicken and egg problem, right? If we look at the number of green jobs, uh, both in Canada and across the world, they vastly outnumber the number of fossil fuel jobs but they're not organized into specific industries. Whereas oil and gas is very capital intensive and very concentrated in certain regions. And they provide such a powerful lobby to governments that it's very difficult for us to phase out those subsidies. So we need something to kind of balance the problem. And that would be public support for green industries. It would be the green industries themselves getting better organized and having some foresight among policymakers to recognize there's a window of opportunity for Canada here to enter into this industry. You know, why is the U.S. leader, the leader in electronics or in aerospace or automobiles? Because it was the first to that market. And now we're starting with a brand new set of markets around green industries. Why is Denmark the leader in wind turbine technology because it was the first to enter that technology. There's still time for Canada to enter, especially with all its mineral reserves and all its highly qualified personnel and become a real player and create all kinds of employment and income in green industries here. But the government has to be willing to invest in these industries. Amazing. Well, I think that is a fantastic call to action to end this interview. We'd love to have you back to talk some of the future working papers shortly. But before we let you go, how can folks stay up to date about on your work, follow you and your work, or learn anything more from what you've talked about today? So I would tell anyone who's interested to simply come to the, go to the Clean Energy Research Group website. You can just Google Clean Energy Research Group and Simon Fraser University. You'll find our website. It has regular updates. And if they would be li like to be a part of the monthly forum, they are most welcome to drop me an email at ahira at sfu.ca. And I'm happy to send them the link for our monthly discussion, as well as keep them on the email list to update them about future upcoming events. I'm also on uh, Twitter and Facebook to uh, give regular updates about my activities. Right now, I'm doing some consulting work uh, for the United Nations and for Global Affairs Canada that all dovetail into this question about the green transition. So on social media, I'm regularly updating 
people about the results of this research. Amazing. Uh, so we have an opportunity to, we like to give our guests the last word of the show. So in just a second, I'll throw to you to just, you know, any thought you have, do you want to share with the, our listeners who cross Canada and also on the podcast? But before I do that, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Andy Hira, who's with the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University and is the Director of Clean Energy Research Group. Thank you so much for being here. But yeah, any last thoughts to our listeners? I want to thank you so much for inviting me and for giving me uh, a chance to speak to your audience. It's this kind of platform in your generation that gives me hope that there can be change. And I believe that it's important to, for young people to be optimistic. I know that the job market is tough. Housing costs are really tough. We're in the middle of a uh, you know knockdown conflict that's going to change geopolitics around the world. But I believe that if we can get young people organized, and start to get them more politically involved, that things will change and things can change very rapidly once we start to organize ourselves. We have the technical solutions. We have the financial solutions for climate change. What we need is more directed pressure towards politicians so that they have the leeway to fight out the battle necessary to push down the fossil fuel interests and start to develop these new green industries. 